Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Vernomatic Productions. Are you ready? Live from the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are gold. And heard around the world by metalheads just like you. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Heavy metal music. Your weekly dose of metal music, interviews, album reviews, news, and more. Want to be part of the show? Send us a message through our website, MetalMayhemROC.com. Or hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Search Metal Mayhem ROC. A proud member of the Pantheon podcast team. It's getting nice and heavy. And now, welcome tonight's host, John the Vernomatic Verno. Good evening, everybody. As always, Thursday night, new content drops. We're in the middle of summer 2023. Back tonight with a really fun episode. I welcome Brian Diamond onto the show. Now, who is Brian Diamond? Only one kick-ass video and film producer. Started his career working with Foreigner in the late 70s. He was on board with MTV when it came around. He was uh, involved with Headbangers Ball, MTV Europe. He was a vital part of the US Festival 82 and 83 coverage for MTV. He's worked with the NFL, wrestling, and he even has some cool stories about Eli and Peyton Manning. So I'm going to have Brian on in just a minute. The stories are endless. A great guy. He's located down in Nashville, and he's been in this industry for years. So it's a fun fun storytelling episode we have for you. That's coming up in just a second, but first, do want to remind you to get up to the MetalMayhemROC.com website, sign up for our newsletter. While you're there, download some past shows, rate, review, and subscribe to the pod. Recent episodes, we had Bobby Blitz from Overkill. Uh, Let's see, we continued our History of Metal series with Metal Walt and Neon O'Rourke, the year 1993. We had Gil Moore from Triumph on a few weeks before then. And starting this summer roll-off, we had a rock and roll detention episode with our friends from the Talk Louder podcast, Metal Dave Glester and Jason McMaster, and we are discussing Metallica's new tour and the landscape in their 2023 plans. So that's all up on the website. Again, do us a favor, leave a review. If we read it on the air, we'll send you a free T-shirt. So that's what we got tonight. Brian Diamond, Metal Tales, Rock and Roll Tales, and even NFL Tales. I'm the Vernomatic. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Our guest today has spent 40 years in the TV and video and film production world. He was there when MTV started. Helped MTV Europe get off the ground, dabbled in wrestling, and even has a connection <laughs> with Peyton and Eli Manning. Welcome to Metal Mayhem ROC, Brian Diamonds. Hey, Brian. How are you, man? Good to see you. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So up here at Metal Mayhem ROC, obviously, you know, we're a hard rock, heavy metal platform. 
we're sort of celebrating the 40-year anniversary of the US Festival 1983. We had uh, Gil Moore recently on the show sharing his experiences with it and, you know, some other illuminaries that were involved with it. We're just going to get right into it. Let's get a quick mm-hmm. bio where you were 40 years ago, starting your career at MTV. Uh, let's hear the story, man, because there's a lot of cool stories, I'm sure. I will try to do 40 years in about two minutes if I can. So uh, I, I was in college. I got a call from a buddy of mine who was the program director at the radio station. Um, he was doing freelance work for AM Records, um, and he called me during intercession and I was running around with my friends and back then there were no cell phones. So I would call into my folks where I was, I was living. I went, I lived at home during school. My mom's like, Nelson's trying to reach you. Uh, and I'm like, okay. And I finally got a hold of him and he said, dude, how would you like to work for foreigner? And I'm like, this is like 1978, 78 or 79. And I'm like, let me think about it for a second. Okay. And they were huge then. So um, I ended up, uh, back then they didn't call them interns. They called them gophers. Go for this, go for that. Mm. So I worked for Bud Prager, who was the manager, his management company. And the woman I worked for uh, was, he ran all of his press. And I did clippings. I ran for coffee. I did all kinds of stuff. I worked for uh, another woman who was in the business there who started a, a, uh, a company representing record producers. Um, including the late, great Bruce Fairburn. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the woman I worked for, Sue Steinberg, became the first executive producer of MTV. And she hired me in 1981. And that's when I met Mark. It's a very funny story, which on occasion he will tell and embarrass me. Um, I was, you know, I went to school for communications, but I'd never held cue cards before. And a, a guy named Robert Morton, who later went on to become David Letterman's producer, was working with us at that time. Letterman was on hiatus. He had left his daytime show. He hadn't done his nighttime show yet. So we inherited, um, Sue was really good friends with, with Morty and we inherited that crew. And Robert taught me how, how to hold cue cards. There's an art to doing it. But I thought when you held cue cards up, the talent reads what's on the card. I didn't realize that they might be ad libbing like Mark Goodman decided to do. And I'm standing there with the card and I'm waiting for him to pick up where he left off in the sentence. And he's still like rabbiting on and going on. And then finally he just went next card. And then that's when I switched it. So, uh, that's when I went Mark and, and, you know, been friends with him ever since then, including the other VJs, but he and I talked a fair bit. So I was there from 81 to 86, did everything producing live stuff. I mean, we'll get to the US Festival mm-hmm. in a second. And then I went to Europe. And was supposed to be there for six months to start MTV Europe and stay for seven years and was um, started in production. And then I got convinced my, by, by my boss to take over talent relations and music programming when those people left. I didn't want to do it because I love production so much. But he said it, he's a good salesman. He said it'll round you out. It'll give you more skill set. Yeah. Yeah. And I did it. And I have to admit it was fun because when you're holding the keys to the castle that people want to get into. Namely, you know, record producers, record promoters, uh, you know, record labels. They want to get their artists played on MTV. It's kind of cool. That was a great time and had so much fun and did so many really, really cool things that started at MTV and extended through there. 
And then I came back and did a bunch of other stuff in between. Um, I worked at Spike TV for a bunch, uh, dealt with mixed, mixed martial arts and wrestling. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Let's quickly rewind to the beginning. 78, yep. foreigner. Where were you going to college? If I can ask, how old are you? I'm 55. So I, I will, I'm 10 years older than you. I'll be 65 in October. Okay. So you grew up in the seventies, the arena rock that, you know, yes, that sir. foreigner Lou Graham from Rochester, New York. Yes, sir. Okay. Are, you know, he's one of the Rochester is a rich metal tradition, but also a rich rock tradition. Yep. Rev on the red line was Lake Avenue. Oh, really? That's, I see. Yeah. I've learned something new. Yeah. Today. Yeah. And here's uh, an, he, another, uh, Fun fact, Lou Graham uh, lived in a house maybe two miles from my childhood house. Tremendous. In any case, uh, Foreigner, Arena Rock, that's where you were. Now, yes, I was I was 20 years old when I was working for Foreigner. Oh, jeez. I was basically William Miller and almost famous. I Like, that's what my life was like. I'll tell you another quick story <laughs> that you'll really appreciate. So... Um, and I worked there and then they were training me to be an assistant tour manager. And I did a little bit of that. I met Brian Adams through that, which was, mm. and we still friends to this day. Yeah. Uh, but one day the, the building was at 1790 Broadway and, uh, Bud had the penthouse floor. And now the coding and zoning, you probably couldn't get away with this, but the <laughs> elevator only went to the 18th floor. And then you had to walk up a flight of stairs to get to the penthouse. So I'm going out for lunch. I come down the staircase. I'm waiting for the elevator. And the doors open up. And there's this thin, wiry guy with a sandy-colored afro speaking English with an accent that I've never heard before. And I found out later he's South African. And he said, excuse me, mate, um, do you know where ESP management is? I said, oh, I work there. You just walk up a flight of stairs. He stuck his hand out and he said, I'm Mutt Lang. And I'm Ugh. here to produce the next Foreigner record, and it's going to be great. And, I mean, I love ACDC, and I love Def Leppard. I mean, Def Leppard came a little later, but he had just done the Boomtown Rats album, The Fine Art of Surfacing, which I loved. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I felt like Kevin Costner in Field of Dreams. I am pitching the shoeless Joe Jackson. Like, this is freaking Mutt Lang. So um, he went into Electric Lady. He thought it was going to be done in three months. And about 10 months and a million dollars later, and remember, this is a million dollars in 1979, yeah. they finished the album, and Foreigner 4 is a pretty damn good album. Yeah, pretty damn good. The quote Larry David, yeah, pretty damn yeah. good. <laughs> pretty damn good. Uh, that, um, that's awesome. So, yeah. so MTV, that was my generation. I remember mm -hmm. when, it, when it came on. Like, yep. I was 1981. I'm like 13, 14. You were the you were the prime target. I was the prime ta target, and in terms of metal, MTV, it was a it was a codependency relationship because MTV made metal, and metal put MTV in those that eighty one, eighty two, eighty three. Def Leppard blew up overnight. Yep. Judas yep. Priest with another thing coming was uh, put that band in that in that stratosphere, yep. and just um. Uh, let's touch on some of the uh, the VJs. How cool were they? So in no particular order, um, obviously, I talked a little bit about Mark. Mark's great. We're still very good friends to this day. Um, he he was, I mean, he's still on the radio, but he was doing a, a thing at SiriusXM called Volume, which was really cool. Yeah. It was, you know, you know it. It was basically sports talk radio for music. Yep. Um, so Mark and I are very close. Um 
Alan, uh, Alan auditioned. A little, little, little known fact in trivia. I was asked to audition to be a VJ, and uh, I was like, you know what? I, I think I'd rather be behind the camera. But Alan and I auditioned at the same time, and Alan, Alan will be the first person to say this. He felt very stiff. He didn't feel comfortable doing it until the day that the guy who actually came up with the idea for MTV, John Lack. Um, Bob Pittman was the guy who made the idea happen, no question. But mm. John had the idea. John gave us, after about two months of doing this, he said, guys, this is not television. Like, you got to be organic and natural. And if JJ's in a crappy, he said this to all of us. We They brought us all back to the office. We were in this conference room. We thought we were going to get yelled at. And John walked in with a three-piece suit and a cigar, and he said, you know, if JJ's in a lousy mood and he wants to pick up a chair and throw it through the window on the set, let him do it. This is what MTV's got to be real. It's got to be organic. That's all Alan Hunter needed to hear because he had an a, he had an improvisational acting background, and he leaned on that. <laughs> and he was probably the most visual, fun VJ at that time. Um, no question that Mark and JJ had they they were like the veterans. They had the chops. They knew all the artists. They had worked in radio for a long time. JJ a little longer than Mark. JJ mm-hmm. was a little. JJ was older than all of us. Um, but the two of them are great. I, and I love JJ. He was like he'd come in the studio every day. He'd hug everybody. He was just like he loved being there. He loved the 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 sort of you know clubhouse mentality that we all had. We were all in this together. Yeah. Um. You know, Mark of course, Alan. Uh, Nina was the sweetest woman in the world. You know, she was really good. She was. She was a little bit nervous in the beginning, and she came around. Here's a really interesting story. So Phil Lynott from Thin Lizzy puts out a solo record, and Warner's with you know doing the normal dog and pony shows, walking them around to the rock stations in town, and you know they said you got to do MTV. So um, Nina had a grandfather or an uncle she was very close to, and. About an hour before the interview was about to happen, she learned that he had suddenly died. And she was crushed. And Phil comes down with the rep from Warners. And, you know, I walked out. I think I was producing the interview, if I remember correctly. But I was definitely in the studio that day. And we said to the woman from Warners, look, we're really sorry. Nina has just had a death in the family. And I don't think she's in any shape to do this interview. And... The woman told Phil, and Phil came over to us and said, would it be okay if I spoke to her for a minute? And I went over to Nina, and I said, are you okay? Phil Lennett wants to talk to you. Is that okay? She's like, okay. And they went into a room, and I have no idea what was said, but he talked to her for about 15, 20 minutes, and they went out there, and she did the interview. That's awesome. I- I've learned a lot about him much later on, because, again, another little inside baseball. I um, When I worked at MTV Europe, our head of PR was a, w- a woman named Christine Gorham. Oh, her husband, Scotty. And I became very good friends with Scott. He, he taught me how to play golf, which was pretty funny. <laughs> Avid golfer. It's a big world, but it's a small world. It's, well, or yeah. as the great comedian, Stephen Wright once said, it's a small world, but I wouldn't want to paint it. <laughs> so there you go. So, um, so that's, that's Nina. And then Martha, who's also still a real, really good friend to this day. Martha was great. We had so much fun. I mean, she was like my kid sister. Yeah. Um, we, we just had a blast. We laughed. We, uh, you know, when you worked in the studio, you, 
produced the VJ segments. I don't want to break this to you, but it wasn't live. I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, that was my next question. Uh, what what was that like? Um, you would tape breaks all day, and like- oh yeah, we would shop VJ links all day long. I mean, it-, it was just it was a factory. You know, it was like the VJs got really good at it. We would give them these tapes that had all of the new videos on them, so they would watch them and study them, and so they knew like, oh, there's like this long instrumental after at the end of the song, so they walked down. Yeah. And and when we mixed it together, it looked like they were listening to it. You know, they, they got they got really good at that. Um, but that's what we would do all day long. The only thing that broke up the monotony was if an artist, usually the artist came in to do both, there'd be a walk-on, which meant that somebody was coming into the studio and would spend two or three segments on air with that VJ. Mm-hmm. And then they might do that with Nina, and then the interview would be with uh, Mark. And then we would stop and shoot the interview with Mark or the, the, the VJ might be doing both the interview and the walk on. Who, um, who was responsible for that kiss on masking? Well, that's a real, okay. You, you want to go deep dish? Here we go. Oh yeah. Did that's, Gene that's, call you or did you call no, Gene? Oh no. I was, I was long gone at that point. The guys who were responsible for making that happen are two brothers. One worked at MTV radio and the other one was a producer at MTV proper and later went on to, in addition to many other things, uh, after it was developed, he took over the MTV Unplugged series and was the producer for. The, he did a lot of things, okay. but he produced that series. Alex and Roger Coletti, devout, hardcore, put him in the top ten of Kiss fans, guys. Okay, and they were the ones, and they worked. They worked with them on the box set as well, and they were the ones who convinced them to do that unplugged on MTV and do all that other stuff. They were the guys. Well, the unplugged was a no brainer. You know, there was a hot top, a a hot, but those guys did everything. Anything kiss was Roger and Alex, but this was a big move. Kiss is going to unveil their, you know, was did MTV have that much juice in that? That's a good question. It was 83. When was that? It's a, it's a good question because similar to rock and wrestling, I was on the periphery of that. That stuff I wasn't as involved in. Did a ton of guest VJ hours, but I saw that from afar. But I did get to deal with Gene years later. Um, a very dear friend of mine uh, was a partner with Gene in a marketing company for about eight years um, and was also on Family Jewels. Used to see him all the time, Rich Abramson. And uh, um, this is separate and apart, but it was during that era there was a guy named Jeff Yap who was doing some business. He was with Viacom. He was doing some business with Gene. And Gene wanted to pitch us. This is when I was at Spike on a um, a boxing series. And um, I'm Jewish. And as you know, Gene is Jewish. I mean, Gene's a freaking rabbinical student Jewish. Yeah. And I was sitting down with him and talking to him. And, I mean, again, I, you know, I'm sure you've had more dealings with Kiss than I have goes without saying that Gene is smart to a fault. I mean, he's a brilliant. Yeah. He's, he, you know, he's a brilliant musician and performer, but even more so businessman. Yeah. And I sat down with him and I used some word in Yiddish and he corrected me and he said, that is, that is the incorrupt pronunciation of the word. <laughs> You're not using the, and I'm like, sorry, Rabbi Simmons. I didn't know <laughs> yeah. I was in rabbinical school. So you the know. ice was broken. The, uh, the ice was broken, but he was good. And we, we passed on the project and he was okay with it. Um, but yeah, so that's kiss, but Martha, great, fantastic. 
I mean, I talked to Nina's a little bit more reclusive. She lives up in Maine. Mm-hmm. I hear from her from time to time, but um, I'm actually doing business with a company in Birmingham, Alabama, and they know Alan very well. And so Alan and I have been talking a lot lately uh, about that. We've caught up and he's in St. Louis now. Um, but you know, Mark's still in New York. Uh, I talked to Martha from time to time, but they were great. I mean, we were, you know, we, we had a reunion about a year and a half ago. Um, and it was just so nice to see everybody. I mean, we're for the most part, a lot of people are still around. Can you believe that was 40 years ago? No, I can't. You know, uh, a guy who, uh, is a brother to me and I actually lived with him for during those early MTV years. We were roommates named Joe Davola. Um, Joe is three years older than me and he has a funny line and he, he won't be upset that I'm doing an imitation of him. He's from Rosedale, <laughs> Queens. He's got a thick Queens accent. And he's like, I just don't look in the mirror. I sound the same. I just don't look in the mirror and everything's fine. So that's how I feel. But it, it was a great time. I, and I, I honestly, I feel incredibly privileged yeah. to have been there both in, in New York and in London. It was so, for different reasons. Some of the best outside of the birth of my kids. Um, I'm now divorced. Otherwise I would have said outside of my marriage. Um, but outside of the birth of my kids, probably the greatest experience. Those 15 years were phenomenal. We're going to get to the US festival in one second, but on a parallel and in this time frame, what was just as important and groundbreaking was, uh, ESPN because oh, yeah. those two came out of the gate. Pretty much, I think ESPN was a year or two earlier, yep. but both of them, and I'm a huge sports fan, and I remember it was like MTV, but then in the morning, I could not believe when I got back delivering my newspapers, I could watch SportsCenter, and I could see those yep. highlights. you have anything ever to do with ESPN? Well, a funny story. Um, I don't know if I've ever told this, so this is a scoop. Oh, all um, right. I... um. I was living in London for seven years and I hit a crossroads. Uh, I, I was, I was having long distance relationships. I was flying back and forth a lot. And I was like, I'm either going to spend the rest of my life in England or I'm going to move back home. I got to make a decision. And so I decided I was going to move home. And, um, there's a woman named Harriet Seitler who was, um, our head of marketing in the States at that time, not early on, but she, she joined us like, she was probably part of what I like to call MTV 2.0. It's like after the launch group, but the next group of people who came mm-hmm. in. Harriet's great. She was Oprah Winfrey's um, chief marketing officer for about 25 years. And so Harriet was working on the launch of ESPN2. And the guy who was launching it and who was behind it was a guy named John Lack, the same guy who came up with the idea for MTV. Wow. And... um I got a call from Harriet to come to Connecticut to meet with them to talk about joining their team. And um, I got there and I think wires were crossed. I told them I was there. Nobody ever came out. It was a weird like lobby reception area. And I never ended up having a meeting and I left. <laughs> so I might've been at ESPN too at some point. The only other interaction I had personally with ESPN years later was Bruce Connell, who uh, dearly departed, lovely man, who was the producer for the UFC. He and his brother, Al, 
had a company called Concom and they did all of the all the live UFC events. They did all the production on that. And their father, Scotty, I think he was like employee number five at ESPN. Mm. Um, so that that that's my only connection to ESPN, other than you know, loving it like we all did. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Cable was really a mind blower back then when you think about it. And then CNN came around, so it was just like, you know, news twenty four hours, sports twenty four hours, music twenty four hours. It was just like great. Yeah, that that's the that's my angle. That, that that's awesome. What was your involvement with the US Festival eighty two and then eventually eighty three? So that was prior to my departure um, for Europe. So we had a bunch of executives who were friendly with Bill Graham. And Bill was the pr- promoter of the first Us Festival. And Steve Wozniak yep. from Apple had made all this money and wanted to put on this festival. And, you know, he was just writing checks and people were showing up. I think the only two people who turned him down were that they went after were John Mellencamp and Bruce Springsteen. Um but pretty much everybody else they went after accepted. Um, I am not a Grateful Dead fan. Um, I respect what they do, but I'm not a fan. Uh, the only time I've ever seen them was at the US Festival. They played at the US Festival at nine o'clock in the morning. It was Breakfast with the Dead. Um, it was right out of a David Lynch movie. It was the most surreal thing I've ever seen. And I think they've been up all night. JJ, yeah, allegedly. And JJ <laughs> interviewed Mickey Hart and Bob Weir. And it was kind of surreal. Um, but so that was the first one. A lot of great people on that. I mean, the police were on it. Petty was on it. Um, trying to think of who else. Um, but it was, it was very good. And then they decided to do a second one and Bill was no longer involved. Um, Barry Fay, who was a promoter out of Colorado mm-hmm. was that, 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 promoter you know kind of up the game i mean when you look at all the people that were on that that festival i mean you know in excess and you two were quote unquote starting out yeah um so it, it was pretty phenomenal but my role i was the producer with the talent we were doing all the interviews on the first on the first run we had actually joe was there for both of them joe davola was the um the post-production producer, he would cut all the packages and then we would send them up on the satellite back to New York. Our network operations center would run a package like once an hour. Yeah. On the second one with Mark, we did the same thing again, but we did live break-ins once an hour in addition to putting out material. Um, so I was the producer on both of those. Uh, we had an executive producer, me, and then we had a talent person who was wrangling the talent for us. And, uh, it was pretty wild. Who did the production on that? Because I know Showtime had the eventual. Presents. Showtime had the event itself. I can't remember who the producers were who actually um, did it. I have to. It wasn't us. We we just got we got a live feed from the stage, and you know we would just pluck performance footage from that to put in our packages. Why was Mark the, for lack of a better word, the backstage master of ceremonies? Because he was MTV, and it was. By 83 MTV. Yes. Yes. And they, they asked him to come out a bunch of times and do stuff out on stage. Um, and I mean, he, I'm biased because I've been friends with him a long time. He is the consummate pro. I mean, he, he can go out there. He can talk to five people or a half a million. Uh-huh. It's like, there's no, 
you know, I've never asked him about it if he ever gets, ner- ner- you know, butterflies, but man, he's freaking good. But he, he did a bunch of that. They also were at Live Aid. So, you know, um, he didn't necessarily do that out on stage, but he was doing interviews live, um, on the side of the stage. I was there as well. That's a whole nother story, but I was the woman who did talent relations for us for years, who basically made talent relations what it was, Gail Sparrow, um, had departed from the company. And um, I was recruited to replace her, which would be like, you're a sports fan? Yeah. It would be like a promising young pitcher from AAA is being brought up to pitch Game 7 of the World Series. Mm. Yeah. So I had the I had the abilities, but I didn't yeah. have the experience to be in the game with that yeah. much high pressure. The bake the cake wasn't thoroughly baked yet. No sir, no sir. The ingredients were there, but the finished product wasn't quite ready yet. Uh, here's a fun fact: through research of late, John Cougar or John Mellencamp or whatever he was going by, he didn't perform because he didn't retain the rights to all his material. They wouldn't sign off on it. That's quite possible. I mean, I, I had heard everything from that to the payday wasn't what he was looking for, but yeah. which is kind of crazy. But that's, <laughs> again, another guy who respect the hell out of his artistic ability and his talent. I just saw him here in Nashville a few weeks ago, but he's um, he's he's challenging. Yeah. As a person. I mean, you go see him live. You cannot believe how many hits he's had. It's it's unbelievable. So who did you interact with? Um, Van Halen, my favorite band. They were a me- they're a mess. And yes, well, you know, it's funny. Um, I forgot about this, and I've had more than one person say it wasn't their best performance. Nope. Um, and um, uh, a gentleman who was very close to them back then, who I just talked to recently, kind of blamed us for it. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like, yeah, we did an interview with David just before he hit the stage, but, but he was on another planet before we walked in the dressing room. So it wasn't us. Mark interviewed David before he went out on stage and they, it was crazy. They had their own compound, uh, their own backstage thing. I mean, it was like, it was insane. There were like, there was booze every, you know, like places to drink and eat and there were, no. You know, hangers on and hot women and, and midgets I mean, we went, running around. Oh, and- it was, you know, it was like Bill Murray and Ghostbusters <laughs> dogs living with cats. I mean, it was just like, it was pretty insane. But, you know, it's funny. We did not see the rest of the band. We just saw David and he was, you know, at that point in time, he was really like the front man and the mouthpiece. It's, I think it's on YouTube. Mark's interview with David was classic. And Mark, I can't remember what it was, but Mark cracked a joke. And even David was like, man, that's pretty good. Like, <laughs> you know, he was like, he stumped the stand-up comedian. Um, but David was, he was on fire. He was funny and witty and um, feeling good, I should say. And uh, the only other thing I remember was David, and it was a line that I think he, excuse me, used more than once. He uh, he said, uh, I'm going to turn my back to the stage. I'm going to turn my behind to you guys so that now everybody can feel like they're backstage. 
Uh, it was nineteen eighty-two. Yeah. There is a lot of yeah. check and a lot of blow and a oh yeah, a lot yes, of everything. Sir. Um, yep. Any other bands? Uh, oh yeah. Uh, so so this also marked on one of the other days. Van Halen was a headliner on the Metal Day. Um, the other headliner of note was David Bowie, and mm-hmm. this was his first live performance in the United States in about seven or eight years, he had signed his deal with EMI and let's dance was out. Yep. Um, uh, and Gail Sparrow, who was our, our head of t- uh, talent booking for us came up to us and me and Mark at the beginning of the day and said, here's the good news, bad news. You're going to interview you. We're going to get to interview David Bowie. Here's the bad news you get to ask him one question when he's about to walk on stage. Jeez. So Mark and I toiled all day long. I think we, I think we killed a few trees with the number of pieces (laughs) of paper. We wrote questions out and crumpled up and threw it away. What was the question? Uh, It, it it was great. It was actually Mark kind of crafted. Mark came up with it and I kind of crafted it and we got it down. He said, you haven't performed, David, you had, this is your first appearance on stage in whatever it was, eight years. Uh, what are your hopes and your fears for tonight's show? And Bowie was a freaking master. He looked into the camera. He looked at Mark and he said, it's kind of like going to a restaurant on a blind date. And before you go in, your friend runs into you and says, she's really great looking. (laughs) And, 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 and then there was a report. We were the only people to get him. But there was a woman who, you know, just, just like complete, you know, guerrilla style came up there with her ET camera and her microphone and flag and went with her mic right in Bowie's face and like hit him in the tooth. <laughs> and while Mark was asking the question and he went like this, like, you want my tooth? It gave Mark the opportunity to ask a second follow up. And then Bowie said, I got to go. I got to go now. And he walked away. And like 30 seconds later, you hear his one of one of his, you know, his tour manager go into a microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, David Bowie. Oh. And there he was out in front of 300,000 people. Oh, right. You're giving me chills on that. Great, great story. <laughs> yeah, um, it was pretty amazing. The fun fact with uh, that whole Bowie thing, Van Halen had a clause in the contract that if anyone else got paid more, their purse had to go up. So originally, right. Wozniak wrote him a check for a million but then to secure bowie it went to a 1.5 so then the van halen yeah favorite nations yep and then those uh fuckers uh the clash had a big problem with it well that was david's thing when we were talking to him he goes you know the clash are having a lot of problems you know they're they're trying to save the world and you know it was very very funny they were great i mean the whole thing was pretty Amazing. I mean, U2 was great. Bono was climbing the rafters with the white flag. In Excess mm-hmm. was incredible. Um, Judas Priest, Quiet Riot, um, Ozzy. Um, Scorpions ruled that. Scorpions. Um, sidebar Ozzy stories. When Ozzy was in a really bad state, um, it was, I think it got amped up uh, after Randy died. Um, he came into the studio and Alan was interviewing him. And Ozzy was just incomprehensible. He just could not put a sentence together. It was, it was somewhere between amusing and sad. Sad. Um, yeah, he was really in a bad way. I, I actually, um, um, Foreigner, 
was playing on the festival that Ozzy was supposed to play, had played after the incident with the plane. Oh. Um, it was down in Florida. Florida. And I went down there. Brian Adams was there. That's where I met Brian. And here's a trivia question for you. Do you know who the band was who replaced Ozzy on that bill when they didn't play? I'll, gi- I'll give you a hint. And so it was uh, March 1982. Okay. Um, they were doing a tour down in Florida. Correct. And a band replaced um, Ozzy. Ozzy. How many bands were on this show? Oof. I, there may have been more than one day when we were there. I think it was maybe four or five. Uh, I'll give you a hint. Yeah. Uh, I need a lifeline. The, yeah. Yeah. Phone a friend. <laughs> Uh, three letters in the band's name. It's it's it. Their initials, basically. I mean, it's a it's a three three. I forgot what they call it, but it's three letters that stand for something. But they were known as that. Uh, um um uh. They were British, also. Um. They. Uh. I'll give you another hint. The first letter is very deep into the alphabet. I or probably you, know it when you say it. You're gonna, you're gonna kick yourself. Yeah. UFO. UFO. No, you be, <laughs> of course, you know, if we were sitting around a campfire and a beer, I would have got it because UFO was touring with Ozzy. Yep. And some of those were some of Dates. those. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So now that Ozzy interview at MTV Studios, there's that famous Ozzy interview on David Letterman after Randy passed away and. Maybe it's the same where he he wasn't in a good place. He wasn't. In oh a, no, he wasn't in a good place when Ozzy when Randy was with us. Right, but then, but that yeah. he, he I I think there was a the relationship that he had with Randy Rhodes went deeper than Randy's talent. I think he really loved the guy. Yeah, like they were very very close. I think I think Ozzy was a little older than Randy at the time, so it was almost like a kid brother. Um. And I mean, my God, you know, it, it, the, the points moot here, but God, he was just at the beginning of his life. I mean, he was, yeah. he would have, he would have been on that rock of Gibraltar that the Mount Rushmore with, you know, the likes of Page and Clapton and, and Joe Perry and all those guys. I mean, the stuff he would have done. I mean, what was he like? 25? He was a kid. Yeah. Something like that. But you know, he, he wasn't long for being in that Aussie band. And oh no, he would have done something on his own or with somebody else or whatever. And when you start getting uh, granular on all that, Brian, um, you know, the Kurzlake and Daisley wrote that stuff and never got credit yep. for it, and like all the, you know, all that Aussie drama. But yeah, no Rhodes, Rhodes. It was it's my era, man. I remember that day where when he died. You know, remember uh, back then we had to hear it on the radio. It was. Uh, there was like bad yeah. stuff. So, uh, different you, times. You ever different meet him? Times. You ever meet Rhodes? No, I never met Randy. Ever see him live? Nope. Nope. But I, but I'll tell you here, just like sort of going sideways. Um, I grew up in Hicksville, Long Island, home of Billy Joel and Lorraine Bracco from the Sopranos. There you go. Um, and, um, my dad was a school teacher and he also taught college. And one of the professors that he taught with was also the assistant principal of my high school. They were very good friends. And his son, this gentleman's son, I can't say the name yet because it might give it away. Okay. But his son was an aspiring musician and wanted to make his way in the business. And at the time, I was working for Foreigner. I mean, I was just starting out. 
and he, he sent me his demo single that he had done with a little band that he was working with in town. And I listened to it and I sent him back some foreigner stuff. And I said, you know, you're, you're really talented and, you know, don't stop, keep going. Don't let anybody tell you to do things this way or that way. Just follow your dream. And, uh, you know, I kind of kept tabs on him and heard about him every now and then. And, and then, uh, this is like seven years later, eight years later, I'm in London and I am at an Alice Cooper concert and I'm backstage before the show and there's a bunch of hangers on or whatever. And I see that guy and I go, dude, what are you doing here? He goes, I'm in the band. It was Al Petrelli. Al Petrelli. Good, and, good uh, rats, Widowmaker, Mag- oh, Megadeth. I mean, now he's in, um, uh, what's the, the big Christmas show that, oh, uh, T- uh, Tri- Trans Siberian. Tra- Trans Siberian. He's in one of the two companies. Um, and he's ridiculous. I mean, I follow him on Facebook. We've conversed since then, but, uh, he's just ridiculous. Like his playing is just like, nuts like oh. he's he, he's like you know zappa meets satriani meets you know you name it oh i got into petrelli when well he was in sabotage after chris yep. chris oliva passed but he also was in that d snyder from twisted sister band widowmaker and those first two are um another long islander you know yep. um, um when you're when you're talking about telling that story i thought you, the punchline was going to be steve Vai. Oh yeah, yeah. Well. <laughs> but um, no, you know, Brian, the, the the metal community, all these stories that they go on and on. It's just, it's amazing because we we do all this on the pod, the history of metal, and we take a year, dissect it, and tell the story, and, and we we go on all day with that. Your career is so long. Do you ever? Uh, there's some metal documentarians, if you will, Bob Nell Bandian. He just passed beginning of the year, but he did a whole line of metal documentaries inside metal Bay area Godfathers. What about Sam Dunn from banger films? Nope. No, the only, the, 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 I will say this. We used to do headbangers ball in London and uh, Vanessa Warwick was the um, producer and host of that. And her ex-husband, Ricky Warwick is in, Ricky Little Warwick. Angels, Ricky Warwick. Yeah, well, Ricky Warwick. Uh, he is in um, Black Star Riders. Uh, is he Irish? Yes. Yeah, he uh, was in another version L- of long brownish reddish hair. I don't know if he still has it, but uh, but Vanessa used to host it, and then we had these two guys on who the, it, it was it it was comedic because they were Northerners, so the accent was just great. <laughs> <laughs> the Bailey brothers, um, they, and they looked exactly alike. They were, they, I think they might've been black Irish, but they were, they looked like, like thicker versions of Phil Linnett, but one of them was really big and one of them was really small. It was, but they looked exactly the same. They had these big curly froze, nicest freaking guys in the world. And, you know, for Americans, they would need subtitles to understand them, but they knew their, their crap. I mean, you know, Metal Hammer was huge. I mean, we were, we were at Donington every year. I didn't go, but Mike Kaufman, who's one of our news producers, they would go every year and they would cover Donington. Um, you know, so the heyday, and, the heyday. Oh. oh God. 
Castle Donington, you had Kerrang. Um, Kerrang Magazine. Uh, you know, uh, Iron Maiden. And now you were there. When were you there? 87 through like 93? So I was there 86 to 93. Um, and uh, I knew Bruce for a little bit. I knew Bruce Dickinson. He was married to a friend of mine. Um, saw them play a bunch. Uh, the funniest thing about, you know, and this is the, the thing that people don't realize, you know, they see these guys on stage and but blood curdling screams and leather with spikes and oh, they look like they could kill somebody. He's this tall. We're, <laughs> we're, yeah. We're, we're before the gig, same thing. We're there and everybody's there with their families and their kids. And like Steve Harris is on his hands and knees with his kids playing with blocks. And he's about to go on stage with, uh, yeah. you know, with Eddie, you know, the big, <laughs> it's just like, you know, it's, it's pretty hysterical. It's like wrestlers. Like they're, they, they, they kind of live the lifestyle, but it doesn't mean they're not human beings with families and kids. And, you know, it's, it's just really, it, it's funny to me because they kind of play a part in the character and they believe in it, but they're, you know, their persona on stage isn't necessarily who they are off, oh, off yeah. stage. Not that, not that they're faking it or anything, but you know, they, they, they're not, you know, <laughs> they're not eating. Pigeons or brat bats for breakfast. Yeah, the, like the, Ozzy, you know? the majority of these people, that's a job. That's their job. And when they're yeah. done, let me ask you something. Because you've been, you know, all access, if you will, for a long part of your career, mm-hmm. has it tarnished the fan in you that you can't, once you're on that side, you can't go back? Here, Here's the thing. Um, and, and you know this doing what you do as well. You... You do have to harness the fan a little bit when you're dealing with talent because if you, because people are expecting you to do a job. Like if you're producing them and working with them, they're expecting you to be as professional as they want to be. But it doesn't stop you from inside going like, I can't believe I'm doing this. Oh, Um, yes. I mean, there, there are, you know, there are certain people for me who are my heroes who I've gotten to meet and, um, you know, um, Oh my God. I'm blanking on his name. Our man from Anthrax with the chin beard. Oh, Scott Ian. Scott Ian. He had a show on Sirius XM called never, never meet your heroes. Yep. And, um, I, I prayed to God that that would never happen. And the two people, two of the people who I've met who are, I, I'm big fans of, I was really impressed with his people. One was Todd Rundgren and the other one was Peter Gabriel. Mm-hmm. And, um, that was, you know, those were my pitching the shoeless Joe Jackson moments. But you still, you know, I think an artist wants you to appreciate what they do. But if you if you're in a work environment and you're treating them normally, they're looking for that because they people put them on a pedestal twenty four seven, and they just want people to interact with them like you were their friend in high school. The ones that are secure. Yeah, I have two questions for you. One. um, why were the why was Rundgren and Gabriel so cool? Answer that in a second. But to comment on being real, a lot of times when we have people on, we'll review their new album, and I'll flat out say, you know, I like eighty percent of it, twenty percent of it. I got a problem with it, and we'll get to that. And you know what, Brian? Usually there's a joke, and they'll say, yeah, those weren't the songs I wrote. That was the drummer. That was the drummer. And, but that always leads to an excellent conversation because it turns into campfire, meaning yeah. we're just sitting around a campfire and, and BSing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they'll, they will give you the world. So 
But uh, yeah, so why were those? Why was Rundgren and Gabriel so Rundgren, cool? I went up to, when Todd opened up his video studio. I was up there. I've got some great photographs that I shot there. Um, I was invited to go. Um, I can't remember through what connection. I think I met Paul Mosian, who ran his studio, and I went up there and I briefly met him. And then I ended up dating a woman who worked at the video studio and I got to know him a little bit. And I actually went to his manager's wedding at Todd's house. And then many years later at MTV Europe, we were, um, our CEO had a relationship with Claude Knobs, um, who is legendary. Funky Claude was running in and out, smoke on the water. Okay. Um, wow. that exact same Claude. Um, and we did, um, uh, we did a couple of unplugs there, but we shot, they did the Montro, as part of the Montro Jazz Festival, they had a rock section, and we shot a show with New Order and with Robert Plant. Mm. And um, after the show was over, or after the rehearsal was over, we went, we all went to this bar. Robert was with his girlfriend at the time, a couple of his band members, me with our production team, and we went back to this hotel to have a drink and everybody's sitting around the bar, you know, Robert's doing his thing with his folks. And I'm looking out of the bar, which is dark into a vestibule where the elevators were for the hotel. And it's bright. And I see this guy who looks like he's wearing pajamas with multicolored hair and a chin beer and sunglasses. And it's Todd. And I got up and I went over and I hadn't seen him in a while. And I just said, Hey man, Brian diamond, I, you know, Tina Carone and uh, Tina's husband is, um, Mark Gallagher from Raven. Oh, my boys, Mark and John. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so T Tina's been married to Mark forever, but I used to date her a million, jillion years ago. We're, we're good friends. And so um, I see Todd, and I'm like, hey, what are you doing? He goes, I'm just here for a meeting with Claude Knobs from Warners and just here for a few days. And I said, well, what are you doing now? He goes, nothing. I go, you want to have a drink? He goes, sure. So we sat down at the bar, and I just grilled him on Woodstock and who was alive and who was dead and who was doing what. It was like, you know, I mean, we were friendly, but not like bosom buddies, yeah. but he was great. And I, I, we, we used this audio truck the next day. That was one of the first expandable audio trucks. Sony had built it. And I asked him if he wanted to come by to see it. And he did. And I did something I very rarely do. I said, can I take a picture with you? And he was like, yeah, of course. And there I am with a shit eating grin with, <laughs> with my hero. Gabriel, um, I worked, I was a big Genesis fan and I did a documentary on them. Um, and I interviewed all the band members and, um, uh, Peter came in to do an interview for one of his solo albums and I produced it and he was very nervous, but he was great. And then years later in London, I did an interview with him when Sledgehammer came out and, um, it was like an hour interview. I, I interviewed him and I, I just felt so comfortable. I said to him, you know, there was this whole mysterious, deep, dark face to Peter Gabriel where you would like shave your head and put on mascara. And I said, you know, dude, you really helped me out. I said, I, I bring a girl to your shows. She'd be scared shitless and she'd want to come home with me. She'd want to be alone. <laughs> so thank you. I yeah. really appreciate that. So you got to laugh out of that. But he was great. I really, really liked him. I used to run into him in town. And when Michael Jackson got the first video Vanguard award, uh, Sledgehammer was out and he was nominated to present that to Michael. It was pre-taped and I was the producer to do that. And I'll never forget this. Peter actually said something that made Michael laugh. It was brilliant. 
But uh, when I called Peter's manager to talk to her about logistics, she said, oh, this should be interesting. The two quietest men in music. <laughs> Did you meet Michael Jackson? Uh, I was in his presence. Okay. Yeah, that's about uh, it. We, we, uh, we did a lot of work with them. And, um, we were told, uh, that he was, it was at Wembley Stadium and he was going to walk through and we were to, cameramen had to put their cameras down and everybody had to turn their back to the, the walkway that Michael was, no one was allowed to look at him. That shit's real. Oh, yeah. Like, not Michael, King of Pop. But like, oh yeah, but like people saying you know, people managers telling you that yeah, don't oh, yeah, look, that, don't look them in the eye, don't and, look at them, don't talk to them, don't do this. That it, it, not often, but it happens. Actor um, actors, I could understand if they're in character, and maybe yeah, maybe but, to some extent the same thing. It was weird, you know. But they, uh, um, no, I so I never actually met him. I watched him rehearse a few times. He was pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I but, saw I saw that victory tour. Um, him and his brothers. Well, I was at Wembley Stadium uh, when all the pedophile accusations were have it being going down, and there was probably seventy thousand people in Wembley Stadium for him to come on stage, and he canceled the show. I think he was too freaked out to do it, and everybody had to go home. Ah, uh, it, it was pretty crazy. But God, bless, God, God, God bless him, and may he rest in peace. Very talented man, despite his flaws. Well, you know, we could go on all day because we barely touched it. I have one last question. Go. E- Eli and Peyton Manning. You had something to do with them. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, um, how cool are they? They are very, um, and I'll tell you, it was very funny. I worked for this thing, this entity, this startup called Whistle Sports, and we had uh, one of our partners was the NFL and a guy who I'm still friendly with who was a young kid starting out as a producer then. He and I went to Hawaii to the Pro Bowl. We were outside of the NFL and NFL films. We were like one of the only other crews to go there to be able to get access to the players and interview them. It was a, it was a platform for kids sports, kids who played sports and kids who love sports. And so, um, one of our executives, he was the president, um, had, uh, worked at Gatorade and got to know a lot of athletes and they were investors in the company and he knew Peyton and Eli personally, and he got them to do interviews with us. So we wanted to do all this fun shtick with them. And the kid who was working for me was going to interview Eli. And we, Eli saw, we had a bowl of fruit in the, uh, in the, in the room we were doing an interview. He goes, what's, what's up with the bowl of fruit? And I can't remember the wide receiver's name. He was on the Bengals at the time. Uh, hyphenated name. I can't remember his name, but AC, he, AC Green. No. What year? Best name. Uh, 2013. Mm, TJ Husmazada. No. Um, either way, uh, El Combo. Anyways, anyways, where he slice it, he was a really good juggler. And if we came in, we were going to have him juggle. So we told Eli that and he goes, I can juggle. So we were going to do this bit. We were doing, uh, Manning. Manning brother trivia, and we were going to ask them both the same questions and see what they knew, like what yeah. their father's number was, who's the tallest Manning out of the brothers and their dad, like all this stuff. And we said to Eli, oh, how about this? How about we question you while you're juggling? And he said, yeah, I'll do it. And he did it. And it was <laughs> hilarious. Peyton 
The same guy, Matt Ford, was supposed to do that interview. He was downstairs trying to wrangle other talent, and Peyton showed up, and it was like, when Peyton's there, you don't make him wait. So I did the interview, and he was awesome. He was so great and so funny and told great stories. <laughs> One of my favorites was he said, uh, he goes, you know, if you're a starting quarterback in the NFL, you got to make sure you're on good terms with your backup because – you need him to collude with you against the head coach. I go, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, you know, like we, we hear plays in the helmet and then 30 seconds before the play, the audio goes out. He goes, and there are times where I want to do the play. I think we should be doing that, what they're calling in. So he goes, I'll go like this. Like it's not working. <laughs> and he goes, the reason why you need your backup to collude is when you come back to the sideline, the coach will look at the backup and go, is yours working? And he needs to go, oh, you know what? It's not working. I, you know, because otherwise you get busted. <laughs> so cool. he, he was just, just great, just brilliant, lot of fun, really good guy. Uh, you know, because we were a kids network, I said to him, you have good parents. You, you, your parents raised two, three really good, good guys. So he was like, well, thank you very much. And he calls his brother Cooper, Cooper, not Cooper, Cooper, Cooper. I, is it safe to say what you see on camera is pretty much Peyton and like when the camera's oh. off? Oh yeah. I will tell you, I'll tell you one other funny thing and then I know we got to go. So we did this thing where we had kids give us questions and I had them on an iPad and we showed them to the players and I showed Eli this question and I had my kid do one. And my kid's question was, uh, if you play Madden, do you play as yourself or someone that's better than you. <laughs> Who do you pick, Marino? No, Eli laughed and he goes like, you know, I, I play the real game, so I don't really play Madden. You know, I, I I called a play once and it didn't do it the way you're supposed to do it, so I don't really play. But he thought it was pretty funny. He was he was very cool about it. So love those guys. Hey Brian, is there anything you can promote on our platform or? Well, um, I. Uh, uh, two things. One, um, I manage a band called Trigger Hippie. Uh, everybody should go check them out. Um, Steve Gorman, who's the, uh, formerly of the Black Crows is the drummer in that band and my dear old friend. Um, and so people should check out Trigger Hippie. And also, uh, they just started promotion, promoting on socials. Uh, Steve has a little side project called Bagmen, which is with Nick Govrick, who's the bass player in Trigger Hippie. And uh, a gentleman named uh, Luther Dickinson from the uh, North Mississippi All Stars. Um, so they're they're playing some dates in June and in August, mainly down here and a few in the Midwest. But uh, keep an eye out for them as well, and follow both those bands on socials. All right, I'll uh, attach uh, all their socials and uh, links on our show notes. Tremendous. Hey Brian, thanks, man. This is this is so much fun. Uh, you know, um, I really appreciate it. It's great to, uh, do a little, uh, you know, reminiscing and yeah. you're very knowledgeable. And I will say, <laughs> I love being interviewed by you because you, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse. You know your shit. Oh, well, thank you. And we like to call it taking a walk down heavy metal memory lane. Very so. good, sir. All right, Brian diamonds. Uh, thank you. And we will talk soon. You got it, my friend. Be All well. Right. Take care, man. See ya. See ya. Bye. 
Metal for life. Thank you for listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. Check out our website at MetalMayhemROC.com for information on podcasts, archives, links to all our live radio shows, and all sorts of info. Please like, follow, and share with everyone, even your non-metal friends. And always remember to keep it heavy. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.